Welcome to the CEO Story, brought to you by KC Johan, founder of Together CFO, where every week we're interviewing the top CEOs in various industries, sharing their journey and extracting the top things that made them successful. We're in a high rise, so we're quite secure, but yeah. generally speaking, it was a bit crazy. Yeah, um, no, it definitely sounds, uh, sounds it. I think we're good. Okay. Hey, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the CEO podcast. We've got a fantastic CEO as a guest today. We've got Adam Brown of Pro Tempo. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi, no worries. Thanks for having me. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about Pro Tempo, and then after that, we'll dig into your background. Yeah, sure thing. So, Pro Tempo is a multinational uh, distributor of consumer electronics. Um, yeah, we do everything from distribution to reverse logistics and refurbishing, uh, B2C sales, and uh, we also do uh, our own manufacturing, and then we also do a lot of uh, kind of software uh, forensic type uh, seller tracking. Fantastic. It sounds like you guys have a lot going on there. Yeah, yeah, no, certainly enough to keep us pretty busy. Yeah, and we'll dig back into that in a minute, but obviously I do not detect a Southern Californian accent there. Where are you originally from? Uh, yeah, so I'm from New Zealand uh, originally. So uh, yeah, the company started in New Zealand and then um, over, the, over the past uh, 16 years, we're uh, now operating in five different countries. That's fantastic. I've, uh, I've got some great stories of friends that moved out to Australia and New Zealand and absolutely loved it. It's uh, so beautiful out there. Yeah, no, look, a great place to uh, definitely to go and um, live a slightly slower pace of life, but uh, a hard place to build a, uh, you know, a, a big business. And very tech forward, you know, I, I often get calls from a lot of companies that have bases in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And it initially surprised me at how kind of advanced it is in progressive technology compared to some other countries. Uh, absolutely, especially um, in the finance side. Uh, but you know, actually, one of the uh, one of the investors in our company um, was the founder of one of the largest uh, payments processing companies in New Zealand. And yeah, you know, one of the things that I remember him telling me quite clearly, probably you know, ten or eleven years ago, was that New Zealand, because it's a small, isolated economy, it's actually quite a good testing ground for a lot of new financial technology, and um, yeah, they can kind of run some isolated. Uh, I guess experiments in that uh, region of the world. So you actually will find, um, you know, when I travel the world, I've often noticed that uh, you know the rest of the world is backward in certain things. But I guess until that point, I didn't really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I, f- I felt the same way when I moved here from England. There's certain things, small things, but you know, like checks, for example, are, yeah. are widely used here in the states, which is just not like that in the rest of the world. Another small one was, uh, you know, credit card machines. They come bring it to you. It's wireless, and you never really lose sight of your credit card. So you've got that security factor, but not here. They take yeah. it from you, swipe it, bring it back. So it was just small things. I thought, you know, the technology already exists. I don't know why it hasn't really been adopted here. Yeah. But, okay. No, anyway, enough about that. Let's get into your story. So. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you started the company, what you were going through, and kind of, I know this is 15 plus years ago, so we're taking it back, but yeah. how did you transition from an idea in your head into a multi-global company, and then with you obviously moving out to uh, to Irvine as well? 
Uh, yeah, no, it was, it was kind of by happenstance, really. Uh, my dad was working for a computer company in New Zealand at the time that uh, had gone into liquidation. Uh, I was at university and I was doing uh, computer science and uh, commerce and uh, my dad actually asked me just with the timing if I wanted a summer holiday job from, uh, from university or college. So I was like, hey, sure. So it's right. Okay, well, the customer, the company's got a customer list and they want someone to build a little web page to help sell down some of the inventory as they wind, wind the business down. So I thought, okay, great. So um, my skills weren't particularly good at the time uh, for coding. So we kind of ended up creating a daily deal site that wasn't really a daily deal site. It was just that we were uploading an HTML page once a day, changing the product because um, didn't have the skill set to actually build a proper e-commerce catalog site in those days. Well, that's a big, it's a big undertaking now, let alone back in those days, but you, you didn't have any of the drag and drop type websites. No, there's no Shopify or anything like that back in uh, those days. So yeah, effectively, that's kind of what we did leading into the, into the Christmas period in 2004. And uh, we just called it 12 Days of Christmas and ran it for 12 days and it was quite successful. And uh, then, yeah, I kind of said to my dad, hey, you know, I think this could be a good business ongoing. Um, and so, yeah, he loaned me some some cash from you know, the bank of mum and dad. And, um, yeah, we, uh, I you know, spoke with the liquidators and, uh, and my dad was very hands-on with me for the first few years as well and it really helped me um, kind of get it going. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's basically what we did. We sort of retooled and became a daily deal site uh, in New Zealand and ran that. Uh, yeah, we actually ran that until 2012 when we, we ended up selling that. Um, but we ran that for a, uh, for a while. My dad kind of uh, yeah, stopped and got onto his own things in 2006. And um, yeah, and it was probably around that time I got some external investment into the company and uh, decided, well, hey, you know, New Zealand's a very small market, small economy. It's hard to find good excess inventory deals where you can show like a compelling saving. And so I started coming to the US at that point to start buying product. Um, and I guess a lot of the brands uh, weren't doing their globalizing their pricing to the same extent uh, back then like they do today. So there were like some significant discrepancies between the local market price and the retail price in the US. So then when you were buying excess inventory and getting a cheaper price, you know, we were really showing like some really compelling kind of savings. And so that really helped to start growing our business. And then we started selling also to other daily deal sites in Australia because I'd kind of worked, found some pretty good sort avenues of supply. And so we started doing that. And then um, randomly enough, I was playing soccer um, on Saturdays. You can time. call it football, I'm English as well. Yeah, yeah, so we've, I was playing football and uh, a buyer from one of the major retailers in New Zealand happened to be in my football team and so started getting us to import Apple products for them. So we started bringing in the first generation iPad and some iPods and things like that back in the day and then that was really where we started to get some serious scale as far as uh, the purchasing went. And uh, at that point, we started really to become more of a sourcing and distribution company than uh, than a re you know, direct retailer, because yeah, you know, we couldn't get the volume through our own site that we could get through selling to some of the retailers. Um, and then we had the, basically the equivalent of Groupon in New Zealand uh, came to us and said, "Hey, we want you guys to run our product division." And so yeah, we ended up running that, um, you know, and that was pretty successful for us for a few years. So we yeah, we really basically started to dial back our own uh, direct retail. So 
stuff and really just become a you know fulfillment center for um you know for retailers and other guys using our sourcing networks uh in the us and over time it really just helped that uh yeah we started to get direct with the brands because we were actually able to genuinely take the product out of the channel and not mess up the the local markets and yeah that was a big benefit to a lot of the brands really that they knew that it was going to leave the us market and you know, the New Zealand and to a lesser extent the Australian markets at that point, uh, you know, the impact on the market of you know getting rid of some goods was a lot lower than it would be uh, you know here in the US. So yeah, you know, we had a genuine kind of competitive advantage at that point over you know, a lot of the other kind of incumbent, I guess, uh, liquidation type outlets. So you know, Adam, I'm hearing a lot of building relationships and key key relationships as well, pretty much where if it's not the biggest one of the biggest retailers it's a friend of a friend that kind of knows someone yeah what are some of the things that you did to actually get into those networks or be able to really uh, turn a friendship into a business relationship uh, I mean that's a good question that's I don't think there's any kind of particular strategy uh, I think it was more really just a kind of case-by-case basis um, but one of the things I probably would say is, like, we have a, a saying internally in the company here, which, you know, um, people kind of roll their eyes sometimes when I say it because I keep saying it, but it's that doing good business does good business. And, uh, you know, New Zealand is a small country. You've got four and a half million people. If you don't do good business, you know, word gets around very quickly and it gets really difficult to actually operate because it's such a small Doing market. good business does good business. Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and uh, and you know we I guess brought that approach uh, to the US and it was very hard in the early days, a lot of door knocking um, to finally get someone to kind of take a chance on you. But uh, you know one of the things that we always kind of do is you know we say we do what we say we're going to do, and if we can't do it, um, yeah, we just say we can't do it. But I think some of the traditional kind of liquidator type guys will do anything they can to get the deal and. Kind of work out the semantics later and you know we've lost deals because we've sort of said hey guys sorry we can't do this um the way that you need it done but uh you know they're also the guys that will come back to you next time um because at least they know what they're getting themselves in for um and i guess you know on the relationship side one of the really pleasing things for us is uh you know two of our larger suppliers and contracts now with apple and google and both of those relationships came about from guys who I did business with at smaller companies that have moved to those businesses. And I guess, you know, they knew that we would, uh, we would do a good job for them and do what we say we're going to do. And, uh, you know, that's just led to more business down the line. So again, just go back that doing good business does good business. Yeah. It's building that reputation is making sure that you don't overpromise and under deliver and that you stay true to your word pretty much is what I'm hearing. Yeah, a- absolutely. And um, yeah, I guess as you get a little bit older and a little bit more mature, it gets easier to do that because, uh, you know, you don't, you know, when you're a bit younger and more aggressive, you don't want to lose the deal, but kind of learned over the long term. That's certainly, you know, one of the things that's enabled us to be successful. Yeah, there's a good book that I read that kind of emphasizes that. It's called Fast is Slow. Yep. It's like to, to really go fast in the long term, you've got to go slow in the short term. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's yeah, pretty counterintuitive to what most people actually think, but I think setting those foundations strong enables you to build a really big house. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Okay, so let's kind of focus in on 
the international move. I've done it myself. I know the pain mm-hmm. that uh, I went through and, and how that looked for me. Um, I was with a huge Fortune 500 company, so it was a lot more comfortable than most people. Yeah. But how was it for you and what was kind of the final decision that made you, one, pick Southern California, one of the most expensive parts of America, <laughs> yeah. um, and two, just to move from New Zealand to America, whereas you had business in several other countries also? Um, yeah, so I guess um, the attraction to America was largely because a lot of the global kind of brand head offices are based in the U.S., and um, yeah, you can actually affect global uh, business from from one location, right? So, um, and that, that we did a lot of work with Jawbone, um, I guess, before they folded back in back in twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen, mm-hmm. and yeah, we developed that into an into a global business, but purely by dealing only through the US office, and that was kind of when it came really obvious to me that yeah, that's that's what we needed to do. Uh, we were also working very closely with another company at the time who was here in Southern California, and we were running a lot of Microsoft business together. And we were, I guess, the outsourced kind of global sales arm. And uh, we even looked at merging at one point. Like, you know, we were we worked pretty closely together. And uh, the Microsoft kind of uh, product kind of, uh, I guess, dried up. Um, I think Synex ended up uh, getting the, the the overall kind of major contract, and so. We didn't kind of work together uh, much after that, but at the same time, kind of made me realise that uh, being here was, you know, was a huge, a huge advantage, and you got taken a lot more seriously if you had a physical, you know, location here in the US. And for me, it was a little bit of the, uh, I had to put the cart before the horse uh, a little bit to actually get a work visa here. I had to then register the US company, get it set up with employees and everything, even though I was still based in, in New Zealand. And then use that as the basis to actually get my my work permits to come over here. So all in all, it probably took uh, probably took about two years to get that done. Um, yeah, definitely wasn't an easy process, but um, yeah, was was a worthwhile. And especially, yeah, we were creating jobs and all that kind of stuff. I did think it would be a little bit easier. Or, you know, I think they, they would have tried to encourage people creating jobs a little bit more. But yeah, it wasn't uh, definitely one of the hardest places to come work internationally yeah and especially from your side you're creating new company building that up so you would assume hey i'm helping the economy here i'm hiring local people it should be a lot smoother but it's tough i've heard stories of people taking five six plus years to do what you've just done um mine was pretty tough and i was transferring with a fortune 500 company that had operations in 55 countries, Mm 15,000 plus employees, and still wasn't straightforward, the amount of interviews and hurdles and steps I had to run through. Yeah. Um, Definitely uh, look back at that and thankful to to get the opportunity, but uh, it was was tough. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the other, uh, the main reason we chose Southern California, um, there was two reasons. One, the city of Irvine actually had some uh, some pretty good tax incentives for multinational companies. Uh, you know, there's a, a also a program called California Competes, which is like a tax subsidy. Uh, so yeah, we use utilize those. We did talk to some other locations like North Carolina and um, uh, sorry South Carolina and a couple of other uh, areas where we kind of looked at you know where it was more um, I guess tax efficient to set up. But uh, Southern California made the most sense. Uh, also lifestyle here is great and. Yeah. 
we're a single flight from you know any of the other global offices. So for you know the international travel and all that kind of stuff, it was much easier uh, for us to do that. And um, yeah, and really just you know lifestyle uh, also played played large part. You've got great access to the port. Uh, you've got lots of warehousing and, and land that you can utilise. That's cost effective. And then still have your sort of corporate base in Irvine. So yeah, that was that was the main reason we ended up choosing this area. Fantastic. And then let's talk a little bit about building the business in the US and the differences and the challenges you found here compared to initially starting up in New Zealand. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot more bureaucracy in the US for setup and things. Definitely, things take a lot longer um, to happen. I think New Zealand is. Uh, you, know, you can register a company and literally have it trading within 24 hours. Um, you know, as long as you've got the right forms of ID and a credit card. So Same in England, yeah, very simple. Obviously, takes uh, takes a lot longer for that stuff to happen here. Um, and I guess with me being the, I guess the principal of the US company and not being a US citizen and things, there was a whole bunch of extra hoops that you have to jump through um, to get all that all that stuff done. But um, I think yeah, once you do get entrenched. Uh, in the market here, it certainly becomes a lot easier. Um, it's it's a lot easier to win business and do business uh, with US companies when you you know are a US registered entity. You're based here. Um, you've got you know physical infrastructure here. I think it just gives that extra level of trust. You know, when you're a guy from New Zealand, you know, making cold calling people um, trying to get business, there's you know I think they're certainly a lot more skeptical than they are. Uh, here and I think you know really getting our physical infrastructure dialed in. Um, you know, once we moved in the last few years, we got to move to a, a pretty large distribution facility um, and land from here in San Bernardino, which is 140,000 square feet. And once you actually you know get people to come and do a site visit, or you can show them you know video or photos of the actual facility and operation, I think you know, that really um, you know gave us a lot of credibility and. Also, just being established in the U.S. and actually being able to, uh, you know, get credit through, you know, get insured through guys like Euler and Dun and Bradstreet and all that kind of stuff. I think that, uh, you know, that really helps with people wanting to deal with you once they know that, you know, you're actually a legitimate entity and, you know, not some sort of faceless person halfway across the world culpable in them. Yeah, no, that's definitely a good thing once you can prove that and have that ability, but. How did you then initially continue to grow? Because you're at a great scale now, but initially, once moving to Irvine, setting up the base there, and then now having a huge factory as well in in, in San Bernardino, um, what were kind of the main drivers that grew acceleration when you actually got set up after those two years of the foundation building? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of all really just been in... Uh, a response to customer customer needs really. Um, you know, we really have built out almost all of our um, services and everything because we've had a customer who's had a need um, to do something, and we've sort of just said, "Hey, we can, you know, we can do that for you." If you know, we know that the runway, as far as the longevity of the business line is there, then we'll build the infrastructure around it. And that's uh, kind of ultimately how we've actually ended up doing every part of the business that we do is has been um, you know, directly related to a customer requirement or customer need. And then we've built the infrastructure around them and that's really where a lot of the growth has come from. And once you've set it up, obviously, then you know, it becomes easy to go to other companies and say, well, hey, we're already doing this for XYZ company. You know, why don't you use us to do to do this as well? And 
um, the consolidation of a bunch of services under one roof and one umbrella um, you know, has also you know, really helped us because uh, we can drive a lot more cost efficiency. Uh, yeah, we do reverse logistics and refurbishing and returns. We do retail distribution. We do B2C sales for companies. And you know, when you're actually doing the distribution into retail for somebody and then telling them, well, hey, actually any returns you get from Best Buy, we can take those back and then we can refurbish them and then we can resell them directly to a customer over here and support the warranty for them. And you can do that all under one roof so you're not having to ship things around the country and pay all these different touch costs of 3PLs and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, then you can actually put a pretty compelling case forward to really bring the overall cost down for companies and just take care of a lot of stuff that's not necessarily their core functionality so they can you know, they can just focus on their normal business. Great. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, as you grow functionalities, it all works together because you've already got a very low cost base and you can keep expanding and adding new channels and bringing in more clients and adding more value to more clients. So it kind of sounds like it extrapolates quite quickly at that point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you get that momentum and it's kind of easy to, uh, to keep it going once you've, you know, once you've actually got it. It's the, um, the analogy of a, of a propeller turning in the first few turns to actually give it some momentum are pretty tough. But once it's going, it doesn't need a lot to kind of keep it running. Yeah, no, absolutely. So then uh, let's talk a little bit about how the organization now runs when you, the core of it, moved from New Zealand to America. How, uh, I'm assuming you still have some staff there and how did that kind of affect them with the leadership moving internationally? Um, yeah, no, I mean, that would, I guess that has, uh, has had its, uh, a few challenges in, in that respect, but we still actually run most of our finance and admin out of, out of the New Zealand office. You know, it's still technically our, our head office uh, from a global perspective. Although over the next few years, you know, I kind of envision that all, all moving here to the US. Um, but uh, yeah, now all our software development, everything still happens out of New Zealand. And, you know, there's, uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's quite uh, forward thinking in the tech space. And, you know, uh, just being honest, dollar for dollar, you can get, uh, you know, the same job done a lot cheaper in New Zealand than you can here, especially, you know, looking at the current exchange rates and everything. Um, you know, you can pay somebody a similar salary in New Zealand dollars that you would pay them in US dollars here. So, you know, you're instantly, you know, 30 to 40%, you know, lower cost for the same job. Uh, so, you know, we do, we certainly keep uh, a lot of those jobs, um, you know, back in New Zealand and it makes sense. We still have one of the major shareholders in the company runs the New Zealand office for us. There's still a strong leadership presence there. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, kind of you know, made the most sense. For us to do it that way. That makes a lot of sense. And then which other countries are you currently operating in in terms of having offices in? Uh, so we've got an office in Amsterdam, uh, one in Toronto, and uh, obviously New Zealand and the US, then we have one in Sydney and Australia as well. Fantastic. It sounds like you guys are doing great. So uh, let's wrap up by saying how can people reach out to you or the company if they want to find out more information? Uh, I think the best thing to do would be to go to our website, which is protempo.com. And uh, that has a pretty good rundown. We actually just revamped it last week. So uh, content is pretty fresh yeah, and uh, accurate. So, yeah, I'd say that's the best place for somebody to, to go and have a look at us. Great. And for you guys watching on video, the link will put it, put it down in the notes so they can get straight over to you. Uh, with that, I'd like to thank you, Adam, for taking the time to, uh, to join us and share those golden nuggets. You've had a fantastic journey from New Zealand to America. And, 
and beyond. I think uh, the future is very bright for you guys by the sounds of it. Yeah, no, thank you. We're certainly uh, we're excited about what the future holds, and uh, yeah, just um, basically keep on doing good business. Fantastic. All right, thanks. Bye bye. No worries. Thanks.